Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes, and I host this podcast, which happens to be on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Thanks for finding us. Today, a special episode of Folk Debate Club, a collaboration we do with Folk Alley's podcast, Why We Write. I have this whole intro. You're going to love it. Milk Carton Kids, Lizzie No, Issa Burke, Kim Rule are all included in this really great conversation. Before we get to that, a little business. Um, I encourage you to sign up for Basic Folk's monthly newsletter. You can do that at our website, basicfolk.com. It's the best way to stay in touch with this podcast. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Basic Folk Pod. We're a listener-supported podcast, so we rely on $5 a month contributions or $10 a month contributions from people who listen to the podcast and enjoy what we do and want to support it in order to keep the train on the tracks. You can go to our website right now, basicfolk.com, and make a contribution. You can go to the store and give $5 a month and get a hand-knit Basic Folk beanie. Beanie season, it's here, y'all. Again, basicfolk.com, click on the store. I give him a shout-out in the episode, but I want to say thanks again to Zachariah Hickman, who recorded Lizzie and Mai's recording at Greedy Beast Studios, his own studio over in Watertown, Massachusetts. It was so great uh, that we were able to to do that, like sit in the same space and record together. So thanks, Zach. Okay, let's get to this very intriguing conversation. It is Folk Debate Club, Your Career Versus Your Soul on Basic Folk. Welcome to Folk Debate Club, our occasional crossover series with fellow folk pod Why We Write. Today, to discuss your career versus your soul, we welcome our panel of guests, music journalist and Why We Write host, Kim Rule. Hello, Kim. Hi. Issa Burke, side player for Aoife O'Donovan, as well as her band, Lula Wiles. Hello. Musician and basic folk guest host, Lizzie No. Hi, Cindy. Yours truly, Cindy Howes, boss of Basic Folk. And a very warm welcome to Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan of the Milk Carton Kids. Yes. Hello, fellas. A quick correction. Hello. It's Kenneth Pattengale and his sideman, Joey Ryan, of the Milk Carton <laughs> Thank Kids. Thank you. And I'm learning that Cindy is my boss. That's correct. I sign We're all the all checks. We're all learning today. <laughs> <laughs> Before we start, I want to give a very special shout out to Zachariah Hickman, who is recording Lizzie and I's audio today. Uh, this is a beautiful recording studio in beautiful Watertown, Massachusetts. Amazing. Thank you, Zach. We all shaved our mustaches in his honor. <laughs> 
Okay, I'd like to think that the act of selling out kind of ebbs and flows with the passing of time. So as the earning power of the folk musician changes, so does the allowance of what is perceived as abandoning your principles for the almighty dollar. Am I right? That doesn't mean that it always feels great. Choices musicians have to make to further their careers can be exhausting and detrimental to their art. So today, we're going to kind of talk about it. We're going to talk about how to strike that balance at the intersection of art and commerce in the folk music world, how you make that choice of choosing your career versus your soul. First question I want to ask, we'll throw it over to the Milk Carton Kids. What comes to mind as a folk musician when thinking about this debate of your soul versus your career? Well, I, I'm, this is Joey here. The uh, I my instinct is to like reject the dichotomy and normalize earning a living in folk music. That was the big thing. You're just playing to the crowd, huh, Joey? Well, I've been historically <laughs> frustrated by certain specific conversations that we've had in our career. My instinct is always to like talk about personal stories and experience. So uh, there have been times when people who have been on our team managers, agents, whatever, have said things like, we don't want to trouble you with like, you know, these financial discussions, we want you to be able to focus on your art, etc. And uh, everybody I know that's in folk music is like the owner of at least one business being their band, if not like completely entrepreneurial and in, in, in many other projects related to music or even unrelated to music. And so like, it just always rang false to me that like, like the crowds that we move in seem to be full of like very financially literate and, uh, and artists, you know, simultaneously artistic people that are like trying to make a living while also not abandoning in their principles. I don't know. It's hard for me to really get into the dichotomy. Uh, also because I think maybe, Maybe it's true to say that historically the reason it's hard for an art it, it, it can be hard for an artist to make a living in the music industry is because the exploitation of the artist in the music industry uh, is sort of like definitional to the industry where you know we, we're gonna make like Gillian said, we, you know we're gonna do it anyway, even if it doesn't pay. So mm. we, they know you know everybody knows that we can't help it. And so whether we make money from it or not, maybe doesn't really affect what we do a lot of the time. See, now I agree with you entirely, but it's packed into a different container, which if if we take all of those facts as a given, which I do, I think the only proper summation is that uh, we're all amateurs and none of us are professional. Oh, I like that too. Yeah, we've talked about this. I love that. Amateur, like in the true like Latin sense for the love of it. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. Like when I got started, I was like, you know, it's 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 a really illogical venture to get a college degree and then start a career as a singer songwriter. Like if you went to your like, you know, H&R Block advisor or whatever, they would say, don't do that. (laughs) And you can only do it if you accept the logic that like you will never really have a real job which is tough and you're going to struggle a lot, but it also means you can never get fired. Like I think people can control what they pay you for. So if you're not getting paid very much, 
you're deciding which gigs to take. It means like you have more control. So I think as indie artists, that's a great strength because like your career is your soul. Whoa. Okay, thanks for participating in the debate today. It seems like we've wrapped things up. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. I also wanted to share a story of like the beginnings of my own music career, which is like probably like I, I would say fits into the box completely of like the ultimate selling out thing to do. And uh, yeah. it ne while, while I was doing it, it never felt that way. And even looking back on it, I probably attribute my ability to even have a music career to this phase of my life, which was when I was in my early 20s, uh, I got connected with a uh, like a commercial music house that was like doing music for commercials. And they also wanted to be like a record label. And it was a bunch of people who were also musicians. So they had recording studios and there was a bunch of other stuff going on there. But the way they made their money was by writing music for commercials. The reason that I didn't quit music while I was completely unsuccessful as a singer-songwriter for 12 years, you know, trying to do it, starting to do it, was because instead of getting having to get a quote-unquote real job to support myself that took up all of my time or working a job that where I had to work nights or whatever, I was doing that, which was very little work. And every now and again, I would make enough money to like last me the next few months by get, you know, winning a job of writing music for a commercial. Mm. And I didn't realize, but I was also sort of learning how to record myself. I was learning what I liked and didn't like about my voice. Now I could have been doing that, I suppose, with just my own songs, but having like multiple prompts a week where you like have to do a little 30 or 60 second thing ended up being the way that I kind of learned what I liked and what I didn't like about about recording my voice and my guitar and stuff like that. I 100% would have quit and gone back to graduate school for psychology and gone back to the path that I was supposed to be on if I hadn't have been able to like make a living doing relatively little work that left me a lot of time to do what I was an amateur at, which was trying, you know, learning how to be a singer-songwriter. Yeah, that's how I feel about the last 12 years of the Milk Carton Kids. Like, I sold a house a year ago. And if I didn't know that, I didn't do that. I don't know what I would have been paying for uh, this year with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we worked a lot, eh? Oh, yes. Oh, this leads me to another question that I wanted to ask. What are some career-oriented tasks that you were forced into doing but then later became soul enriching. Like I think the commercial music thing is a great example. I was thinking about making merch. I mm. think it's so stupid that I have to be a t-shirt salesman or whatever, but I've recently taken it as an opportunity to collaborate with my partner who's a designer and like talking to people about what they like to buy, I think is actually really fun. Mm. It makes you think about the visual aspect of like what aesthetic works with the music that you're playing. And I think it gives you like a bigger kind of mood board view of your own music. So I was curious if, if you guys had thoughts about like other things like that. For us, it's all of it. Like quite literally mm. when our band came out, everybody was doing pledge music campaigns. Mm. Joey and I would just privately trash on all of our friends that would do pledge music <laughs> campaigns because it feels <laughs> like such thankless work that, nobody should have to endure and like 
you already poured your soul into this music that should be good enough, but then you have to come up with these different gimmicky packages and I'm just sitting there pulling my hair out like whoever did that at the end, I'm sure they overextended themselves and they devoted so much time to putting together, like there's no money, what the hell. But still there was a need to do something other than sell your songs for a dollar because that wouldn't cut it. For me and Joey in that moment, our thing was like, yo, fuck all of this. We're just going to put the music in a zip file and put it on Twitter and tell everybody to take it. We don't want your email address. We're not going to come up with an extra poster or meet and greet or what. Just take like whatever. And that's the thing. And even 12 years later, like we're about to go out on tour. And do you know what we're going to do starting next week? At the Milk Carton Kids shows, merchandise is free. We're just bringing our merch and whoever comes to the show, they can just take what they want out the door. And that's because I looked at what we made in merch for the last two years and it's driving me crazy. The amount of like bloat in our operation and the amount of money we spend doing this and this. And the only way that Joey and I could feel like we could write that ship or have it resonate with what we think this whole exchange with our audience is it's like, we're just going to bring more merch and give it away for free. And we're also going to make sure that anybody who wants to like donate some money because they know how much it costs or whatever, like you can send us some money. Cool. But if it's a giant disaster and we're just giving away our records to our audience, cool. They bought a ticket. They're there. They're taking part in the, in the show. Like we're going to figure it out. But so for me, like every single part of that is an opportunity to exercise your creativity and have it work for you. I think literally every single inflection point of a music career has that ability. Cindy, you're producing this episode, and I would love if you could redact um, everything that was just said, because um, I am really grateful to be the owner of some free Milk Carton Kids merch, but I have no plans in future to give away anything, so <laughs> I really would like to not be made to look bad. Right. Don't put that idea in people's heads. Well, it does say on the little instructions that we, Kenneth made to put at the merch table, it, it does say, don't be a dick. Don't take more than you need. And who needs Milk Carton Kids merch, really? Yes. That's right. <laughs> Fair point. Now you're saying what we've all been thinking for the last 12 years. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like Lizzie said, like, why are we t-shirt salesmen? Oh, why what indeed? a nightmare, eh? What but a we're, nightmare. We're not anymore. Now we're not. Now we're t-shirt giveawaysmen. <laughs> I actually feel like the solution is like an OnlyFans style, like, you can talk to me face-to-face -face for 30 minutes. That's what you can pay for. That's called teaching lessons. <laughs> oh, teaching lessons. I don't like to, to like give out like skills or anything, but like we can chat. Actually, teaching is one of those things for me that I think I started doing just because I needed the money and it was there. But now... Now that I've kind of like spent years honing my relationship to teaching and figuring out like the contexts in which I enjoy it and the contexts in which I don't, and I am at a point in my career where I can be a little pickier about who and where and what and how I teach, it's become like a really central part of like my musical practice. And I also feel pretty strongly that like musicians who don't like teaching just shouldn't teach at all. I think there are people who who do it just for the cash and like their heart's not in it. And 
passing on the skills that we've learned to make music, I think is like a sacred thing in terms of like your career versus your soul. I feel like that is an area where if it's not feeding both, find another, find another thing to do. It's kind of a, not the direction the conversation was going in, but it was in my brain. (laughs) That's a really good uh, point that you just made, which is like my instinct is that there's there's a lot of ways to make money in music, actually, mm-hmm. you know, as as broken and sort of toxic as the certain areas of the financial ecosystem of the music industry are and have always been. There's a lot of ways to make money in in soul fulfilling ways, and uh, I think what you're saying is you found a way that like total that's totally soul fulfilling, also financially viable. And uh, I think maybe that's what that's the holy grail that we're all after. And uh, it takes a little bit of flexibility and and openness to realize like, oh, you don't have to do the main lanes that everybody is in. And, you know, just because it's working for somebody else, maybe it's not working for you. But hopefully there's enough things out there that are like of value to other people that you can be fulfilled and make a living from it. Yeah, 100%. To me, the thing that, Ease's comment reminds me of is like a North Star that I think Joey and I always followed and then we lost sight of and we've been reminded of and it's sort of plainly there in the DNA of of music and its essence and what it's all about, which is that at any point when you're scratching your head, the only thing you have to be reminded of is that the thing about music that's ever giving is the community that it builds. Um, And you know, engaging in a creative process is obviously a, an important tool of self-expression, but music, literally every blush of it makes no sense unless it's forming community and it's forming connections. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I guess for the young people, you're going to learn as you get older. For the old people, you could slap us around and tell us we always should have known. That's the thing that keeps <laughs> us all like aging gracefully keeps us from spinning out and from feeling directionless or feeling communityless. And I think at every turn, that's the reminder that anything that you can do that, because also the, this question about selling out, like is almost an unanswerable or like an unfathomable prompt because every single person that engages in music comes from such wildly diverse backgrounds and means and, ability to participate and so to think that there could ever be any kind of like generalized path that would work for anybody is totally insane because i have i know people that are significantly more talented than me that can do music their entire life but never have to worry about money because they come from generational wealth or because they come from you know like whatever and i also know people that have no business making music because they suck and they come from the same place and they go and have what uh, from the outside looks like a way better career than me even. And I'm resentful of it. Whatever. The point is, this entire experiment has to do with building connections and making connections and forming community. And I think you can remove the financial component entirely from it because in the end for everybody individually, that's just going to be a life factor that has to be contended with. But I think it's kind of irrelevant to the thing that music gives us. Damn. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have a question, too, but I wanted to say first, you know, coming back to the idea of community, that that is 
a big reason a lot of us are in this side of the music industry. The, the folk world is all about community and connection in a way that, I mean, all art is about connection, but, but the folk world is a very specific kind of connection, very specific kind of community. And I think that's as true for us as music journalists and radio people, um, as it is for the artists and, and everybody else that are sort of working on the performing side. You know, I've found that the people who are dedicated on my side of the music, on my side of the equation are as committed to the idea of folk music and a balance of soul and career as the artists are. And I think that that's a really cool, unique thing about our part of the industry. But I was wondering, you know, I have to ask the songwriting question. So um, songwriting is a thing that connects one soul to many others. And yet modern capitalism requires that career enter the equation. And I'm wondering who are some artists that you feel have navigated this conundrum artfully and what have you learned or borrowed from them when you approach your own work? Hmm. I find it hard to answer that because like in our world, in our community, I feel like basically everybody is doing it, is navigating it well. I don't know a lot of people that are writing songs that like aren't meaningful to them or aren't sort of soul fulfilling and aren't, isn't for the purpose of seeking connection to, with the community of people that, you know, like this kind of music. So it's a little bit, I think maybe, I don't know, someone can disagree but i feel like it's like the a little bit the the water we swim in is just people making music for the right reasons maybe that's why we're here maybe that's why we haven't endeavored to try and do something different to like get bigger or break out into it more like with a, you know find a mainstream audience or something like that it just kind of feels good here everybody doing it for the right reasons you know my favorite historical examples is leonard cohen who made just one of the most amazing debut records of all time. And then for his second record, he basically decided to just write new lyrics to this other song, like the songs he just put out and was like, Hey everybody, these are totally different songs. And then you listen to it. It's like, no, that's the chord progression to Suzanne and the melody and maybe some of the same backing tracks, like what the fuck man. <laughs> um, but clearly <laughs> for him, he wasn't worried about anybody calling bullshit on that or that even mattering like that. You, I think that we can all trust now Leonard Cohen was not like doing that because he thought it was some formula that would result in some wild success. It was just his strength was writing lyrics and telling stories and he didn't really care about something that I think probably in modern times you'd be embarrassed about or, you know, like the kind of nitty gritty that us making music in the last 20, 30 years, the, the, self-reflexive tendencies we have about how we're viewed and what we have to change to transmit originality and transmit some kind of individuality. Leonard, there's the most wonderful historical example there. Leonard Cohen just did not care. And of course, history doesn't care. <laughs> you listen to that and it's like, yeah, two different songs, same chords, whatever. Maybe I should try that. You'll win in court too. If they ever challenge you, just ask Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> Everything Damn. changes when you have litigious uh, errors. I feel like Adim the Artist really kills it on this mm. front. Like I think back to the fundraiser. I should not say that word out loud. Can someone else say it? When Lizzie thinks back to the redneck fundraiser for Adim the Artist, 
What do you think, Lizzie? Well, that fundraiser was so successful. And like I think about crowdfunding and how it can feel so there is some there is an ick to it, and I've done it. But they were so persistent about it and so humble about it. They were asking for like one dollar from fifty thousand people. Mm. Um much like Barack Obama, hope and change vibes. Like I think that that was such a great example of like I need some money and I don't want it to ever be a burden to anyone. So I'm going to make it really silly and write a bunch of songs and share them along the way and make sure I get as many people as possible involved in my album. And that made for an unbelievably successful release on White Trash Revelry because so many people were already emotionally invested in it and thought it was so funny that somebody was trying to fund an album $1 at a time. Do you think that translates though? Like, do you think now that they've done that, other people can pick it up and do the same thing or that seems no. it kind of seems like lightning in a bottle. Yeah, no, you have to be real funny <laughs> because Adim can talk to anyone, like convince anyone to be like, "Hey, you should donate to my little fundraiser." Ba-da-ba-da-ba-ba. It has to come from a, a real place and like a true instinct toward the community that you're trying to foster or the the project that you're trying to accomplish like I think we accomplished it once when we gave our albums away for free in the very beginning. We accomplished a similar thing just from personal experience when we did a tour that was called the Milk Carton Kids in very small rooms for very low ticket prices, which like actually wasn't that cheap. And the rooms sometimes weren't that small and it sold out immediately at a time that we were not selling out shows immediately because it just felt like it was cheaper, but it was like $15 shows. It wasn't like $3 shows or something, but we had gotten into this thing of playing. We'd been playing theaters for a while and the tickets were getting to be like $40, $45. And we were like, who can come to shows for $45 all the time? Like we need to be playing for 15 bucks. It did, it did really well. And it can, you know, but I think we've tried other things or it, it doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that like four months later we could have done the same thing and it would have succeeded again. There, there is an element of like, you know, it's kind of project based and it kind of has to feel true, I think. The other thing I keep thinking about is I think the time that the Milk Carton Kids sold out the most, and I think maybe it's important to say, Kenneth, you can say if you think this is true, but like when I think back on it, uh, we were like really burnt out on, I think I was, I think we both were on touring essentially in like 2018, 2019, And I think it was essentially selling out to be going on tour for those two years of our career, even though that is like sort of accepted as one of the artistically valid things that an artist would ever do. I think when I look back, we were basically just doing it because that was the way that we made money. And I think if we had other ways that we made money, we would have done other things because we weren't liking it. We had lost our sense of connection to the real reasons we were doing it, to the community of people that was coming out to the shows. Like we just weren't in touch with that. And the pandemic helped recenter and reframe all of that. And we're like totally in love with it again. But for a while, it felt like a job. And now that we're in this discussion, I realized that is kind of, that's what selling out feels like. And it, it doesn't have to be that you go, try and be a Nashville country songwriter if that's not what you want to do because that's where the money is. Like sometimes the money is where it's supposed to be and you still aren't feeling it in your soul. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I love that. One thing that I, I was just thinking about, um, I feel like uh, the connective tissue that I'm seeing like between what you guys were talking about with the lower ticket price shows and what Lizzie was talking about with Adeem's crowdfunding campaign is like there in both cases, I feel like there's a real intentionality of like, what kind of community are you creating with your shows? Like who are you getting into, who are you bringing into your audience? And you guys didn't want your audience to only be like middle-aged rich people. And Adeem also wanted a similar thing, I think of like getting Mm -hmm. a bigger tent of people. And um, I think that is a real, that's a real key piece of this, your career versus your soul thing is like thinking about it, not only as like, me, the artist, like shut up in my attic thinking about my silly little songs, but also about like a live show is a profound community space. And so like, what am I going to do with that opportunity to create that kind of gathering? Totally. That's really fascinating. And I, I think about it sometimes because it's, it's strange to say, but there's now money to be made in being a person of a marginalized identity in Americana. And so like, I feel like, like often I'm like, am I going to do the black history month playlist? (laughs) Would that be selling out? Yes. Because it's not for me and people who look like me, it's for white people to like pat themselves on the back. And then there are opportunities that are genuine and like, so like, you know, like the Fort Worth African-American music festival, like from the outside, it might look like, oh, those are both opportunities to like educate and share your art. But like one feels like it's for us and another feels like it's pandering. Mm-hmm. And like you have to use your own intuition to know who you're doing the thing for. Because I find it really uncomfortable to share any part of my personal life like publicly. But that's what we do as artists. And we choose the ways that like we're going to share of ourselves because we think it's going to a higher purpose, right? And so if you continue letting people take pieces of you and you're not in control of it and it's not intentional and it's just to like get another opportunity or some money, that's when it starts to feel like selling out. Unfortunately, it can be hard to tell, but I think those are the waters that we're swimming in right now. Mm. That's a really interesting perspective to hear, Lizzie. And I, the part that I feel like complicates it further or makes that possibly like a really untenable situation for people is like some of us are going to have to sell out and some of us aren't i mean whether or not it's our music like some of us have to get jobs some of us don't some of us have many children that have to be paid for some have expensive other habits they opted in for you know whatever it's all it all comes down to like at a certain point there's this whole adult Venn diagram of like how much your life costs and how you're going to pay for it. And if you got lucky or if you got unlucky, you know, what are all these things? And then to add into that another layer that would test your own character and your own dignity and to test that's like what a confusing and burdensome affair, you know, hot damn. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. I think we're talking about uh, integrity Mm. and, that's something I'd like to hear from you all about, about, you know, what does it mean to maintain your integrity in this folk world that we're in as musicians? Well, the good thing is Joey and I don't have any integrity and we never did. So it's <laughs> oh my not. God. To, 
Stop <laughs> not, it. Not too big of a consideration. No, I'll tell you, like, I, uh, sorry if this isn't a direct answer, but it reminds me of the, the thing that I keep thinking about over the last eight minutes of this conversation, which is the music industry from the beginning of its formality has done a really convincing job of telling artists that they're supported by the financial infrastructure of the of the business um, when they're actually not all of the audiences that we create we create out of we create out of nothing all of the money that we use to make our music is like up until a few years ago when license deals became more prevalent up until then it was literally money that other people gave you that they were taking a risk on you if it failed but if it was successful Every single one of those dollars and every single one of those cents is yours. You're paying for it. And it's such a crazy shell game and such a crazy usurous um, exploitative transaction that all of our barometers are completely fucked and are completely off. And when you talk about Adeem the Artist and their engagement with the their community and the way they tried to raise funds or successfully raised funds – what a wonderful way of flipping that on its head because it's opting out of this thing where I need $10,000 to make a record and get people paid. I'm going to go literally sell my soul to some bozo that, yes, they're taking a financial risk, but if it pans out in any way, shape, or form, they were just using you to see a profit margin. I keep being reminded of that and like this a question about dignity and, and integrity I think, to me, the next phase of participating in the music business in an enlightened way or in a way that has where you exercise personal autonomy and, and agency is one where people, the participants, the musicians, really see that for what it is and try to get creative in finding a way to actually get rid of those people that are here to use us that, that we live in a world more and more where they're not necessary it's why many of the people in the music industry are willing to work licensed deals with you now and they you know have to come up with a salary that they ascribe to their hourly worth and hourly time and you can opt in we've taken part in different ex in in all of the experiments and seen different results of how it um motivates people to work for you and what networks you have access to, etc. But I do think that if there's any upside to this crazy connectivity and instant globalized community, it, it, it's that there's one small escape hatch where we, maybe we can uh, escape the oppression of the, the sort of um, financial system that has run the music industry for as long as it's been conceived. I feel like that's the great awakening. Like if you work at a bank, they can tell you what to wear. But like none of us in the music industry, even people that are successful folk artists and even like major artists, nobody is getting fairly compensated. So you should really do things like you have every reason to do things on your own terms and to like be fully yourself, it, which is very freeing, even though it means often you're going to kind of be on your own and depending on like a more scrappy community to fund your work. Yeah, I think that's like a huge strength. It's one of the places where I'm sure many of them would have a gripe, but I feel like comedians hit the sweet spot in the sort of historical gestation of like their career and what it is to make money individually. You know, like the only example I can reach for is Louis C.K., which I, is somebody that 
has enough problems that um, I don't really want to be promoting Louis C.K., but that guy would go do... I don't know her. That would go do... (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, They would do stadium concerts and film it themselves the way that we would, like, film a club show and put it on Vimeo to sell for 10 bucks and, like, what a wonderful business model to interact with an audience that you fostered and created and, like, we live in a world where that can happen and there's mainstream examples of it happening. How wonderful would that be in the music business if you could do that and not feel like you were missing the mark on opportunity or missing the mark on being able to connect with, you know, an audience that you fostered. I love that. Regarding Louis CK, like sometimes people <laughs> do bad things and also good things. Um, <laughs> well, but one one thing that I just started thinking about, um, like I feel like the concept of selling out has been kind of weaving in and out of this whole conversation. It feels almost hacked to say this out loud, but like I think we all agree that like the conversation about selling out was a very specific thing like a few decades ago when it was a lot more possible to make money off recorded music. And that the window of time when musicians could make a lot of money off recorded music was like it was like 40 years maybe. And now we're on the other side of that. And I think the conversation about selling out has become really different because it's so much harder to make a living. So we're all kind of like, you know, get your cash where you can. But I think we're now kind of moving like in, it's like the galaxy brain meme, like we're ascending one level even above that and thinking about what are some ways that we can get the cash that we need without having to completely just like do things that we hate. Could I complicate that thought for Issa though for a second? Mm. Which goes back a little earlier again to my insistence that such a big equation to this is like where people are coming to the industry from and their mobility. Because for example, Joey and I still make a lot of money every year off of our recorded music. I won't say numbers, but we make tens of thousands, maybe six figures from Spotify every year because we exist in a part of the music business where that still pays out in that way. It would have been different if it was 10 years ago or 14 years ago and we were making a dollar a song and people were, I think Joey and I still would have made even more money then. Obviously, we would have if we were in the 90s and we were on a major label and the career looked the same. But I agree with you, but also that's not all musicians. The people that make a lot more money above us, they make a killing off of streaming. That's not an issue. The issue is um, in a part of an industry where I would argue that there's there was there would always be a hard look. That would be the same people selling CDs out of their trunk at smaller gigs and like how do the finances add up for you and for who you are and where you come from. And all of that to say, also, I know that for many of the albums I've produced, many of my colleagues who make a full-time living making music, yes, they make like zero bucks off of streaming every year, which is a problem. But it's not like, that's not a picture of the whole industry. When you say it, I'm like, oh, that's not me. I make a lot of money. That's really good to point out because like most people don't want to admit when they are like not suffering the way that a lot of other people are suffering. And it is really like this inverted pyramid where it, those pathways are still possible 
but it is so skewed against the majority of people that are putting out recorded music. Totally. Another small diversion, and we don't have to go in this direction if we don't want, but I've been a part of a number of projects where as a producer and somebody who's giving advice and and being a trusted advisor to an artist, when it comes time to a decision and the methodology comes up where it, where like certain artistic decisions are considered in the context of like, oh, will this stream better? Will this have a better chance on playlist? I'm the first person to try to give like a gut check. And it's like, hey, you have 90,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. Like we shouldn't make any decisions based on that. Like you haven't been lucky on that front yet. And if you get lucky, cool, great. But like, why would we even consider this when we're talking about an artistic decision? That's nuts. And I feel like the system that we're in and social media and the way that thoughts and information swirl always puts artists at a disadvantage to feel like they need to represent the systems that they see projected at them and that they have to think about that. It's a difficult thing because also I'll fully acknowledge I could be wrong on all of those times where I, you know, piped up and gave my opinion to an artist that I was working with. I could have been the thing that kept them from landing a big Spotify thing that bumped their numbers up and uh, made them able to earn money. But it's like, I don't know, the whole thing is like uh, so varied and we have such a desire to see these things as like monolithic, knowable, calculable things and none of them are. I I think it's pretty fucked up that you would um, undermine artists in that way. <laughs> Kenneth, I just have to say, why it. would I, you do it? We're being authentic on this fair, podcast. Fair, yeah. good point I, I, you know who is balancing it well is Taylor Swift. Oh, here we go. That's my gratuitous Taylor. Ring the Kim bringing up Taylor Swift alarm. <laughs> Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. I mean, I think with the Taylor version recordings, like to bring it back to Leonard Cohen, like there are so few artists that can get away with using the same music again. You know, of course, she did it in a very different way and for different reasons than he did. But but it's a pretty boss move to sort of keep a connection with your soul's creation without losing your respect for yourself. The best take that I recently heard, uh, you can't say anything about Taylor Swift that could possibly be construed as negative in any way. So I'll just put this under the heading of, yes, totally boss move. But she, one of the most successful artists of all time in the world right now, re-recorded all of her music and sold it back to her fans again that already had it and made them feel like they were taking part in a revolution by giving her their money again. That's fucking boss move. Yeah, I would never want the Swifties to start coming for me on the internet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but let it out let it out <laughs> some of my best friends are Swifties you know I think Swifties deserve rights <laughs> Swifties deserve Swiftie rights, rights are human rights any day now they'll get the vote <laughs> yeah and I think also like I this this brings up something that uh is interesting that like integrity is something that can't always be known by anyone other than the artist even including the artists themselves, because what seems to one person uh, like a sort of righteous take back of your own artistic autonomy uh, might seem to someone else like a cynical cash grab. 
And yeah, Joe. none of us can know what is in Taylor Swift's soul. By the further record, I think it I think it was the former. I think it was a righteous take that. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah, I mean I yeah, I'm I'm not saying anyone's saying anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stake out cynical cash grab territory. Yeah, nice. I'm not afraid to say it. I'd say I'm somewhere in between. But this also, I want to circle back on the the Spotify conversation because uh, A, I remembered what I was going to say, and B, I wanted to respond to what Kenneth said, which I think it is true. I sort of fell into the trap that of talking about Spotify as if it is this one thing. One thing that I see a lot of people do when talking about Spotify is try to compare it like one-to-one with CD sales, which is nonsense. When you talk about like, oh, we made this much money off of this many listens, we would have made 50 times that much on the same number of CD sales. And it's like- They wouldn't buy your CD every time. Like 75% of the people who listen to you on Spotify wouldn't buy your CD because they just heard you on the Pulse of Americana playlist that they put on without knowing the names of any of the artists they're listening to. They also wouldn't buy your CD because they're robots. They might not be real people that exist. They're yeah. Computer programs <laughs> yeah. that are there. No, all of my listeners numbers. are real, Kenneth. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Leslie. Yeah. Is Every kidding. single one. I forgot. And they're all really nice. And then the other thing, the other thing I wanted to say is that with Spotify, a lot of artists have moments, I've had moments where just having my music on Spotify at all feels like selling out um, because it feels like even the financial considerations aside, it feels like like the, the way that Spotify works, it like privileges songs over albums. It privileges like music that is easier to listen to or to like have on in the background at a coffee shop. Like that's the music that's going to make more money on streaming. That's not the direction that I want music in general. I think music in general suffers when that's what is privileged. And, and yet, because there is so little ability for like, you know, not to get all like Jacobin, but like there's so little potential for like collective power among musicians. We don't have a real union. And so it's like, you have to put your music on Spotify because you have to have a career. Except Joanna Newsom, God bless. You mean you don't want to enter your most deeply personal work in a global prom court election? Just for validation? (laughs) You don't want to, that's unreasonable to ask? Hmm. (laughs) I sing about my ex-boyfriends better than the rest of these gals. (laughs) No, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Ooh, now the Swifties are really going to come for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm a side guy now. I want to bring it back to something that Kenneth was saying a minute ago, which I don't remember what it was at this point. But I was wondering how the need to make a living impacts the creative process. Oh, when you were talking about producing people's records and you would say, this isn't going to land or, you know, why go this direction? At what point in the process of writing a song... Do you concern yourself with how it'll land versus what your soul needs to create? Is it in the writing process, recording, promoting? Like, at what point are you like, this is something that's really going to bring in the bucks? Personally, I always felt very lucky in the same way that I always felt very lucky in my life that when I would go to sleep at night, I didn't worry about what my purpose was on earth or I didn't search for my what I was supposed to do. I always, as long as I've been alive, I've 
literally rest assured knowing what I want to do, even at times when it was really hard to do. And in that same vein, the thing that feels true to me musically is a very instinctive, internal, personal thing that I have always had and has never felt, I think, related to external expectations. It's always been something that sounds true or not. And if I was going to dig a little bit deeper into that, it plays into my other theory, which is very basic sort of um, crack psychology. But I do think that all of us making music and writing songs are just trying to write the things we loved as children and the things that we heard as children. That's not a very hard question for me personally to answer, Kim, because all of that was sort of gifted to me without really ever having to contend with it or think about it. Yeah, I would say the same. I don't we maybe it's uh, again back to this question of like this community that we're in, that this little corner of the music business or that we're in. Um, I, don't, I don't feel there's a particularly uh, outsized reward for like trying to write something you think other people will like. I think we've always had an instinct to just kind of at least on the songwriting front, it's been very easy to just do what we want to do and then see what happens <laughs> when you put it out, which I think, so you don't run the risk of uh, selling out there. Quick anecdote so that we can provide some, I'm sure, expected Milk Carton Kids antagonism, which is that Joey insisted on a double chorus in Michigan, whereas I think that was the most bullshit sellout move from the beginning of our <laughs> band. Oh yeah, a craven cash grab. So this is good. This is uh, this is a a good maybe way to bring it back full circle on like what the actual definition of selling out is, right? I mean, sometimes selling out is going on a tour that nobody would ever think is selling out because that's what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, I, I don't want. I don't mean to like throw it back on you in an accusatory way, Kenneth, if that's even a word. But like, I, I felt like you're resistance to having a double chorus was because of a sort of external notion you had of what that signified rather than an internal notion of what the song needed at the moment when to me it was so obvious that like we should sing the chorus again right then like that's what it feels like it wants whatever bro i sell out every night on stage when we hit the double chorus i just fooled over in shame i go here we go yes no clearly we did it and um, spotify (laughs) says that that was the right thing to do so it was the right thing to do but like he said like he says like you wisely i think said i'm really taking this i'm going to remember this from this conversation is like sometimes you can't know what only the person doing it can know if it's selling out or not i think the the really frustrating and amazing thing is that like in that like dialectical sense what you think is going to be a disqualifier for you commercially is going to become the thing that makes you the most money. Like that's just always how it is. And so you should just be yourself so you can make money. Bingo. Circling back also on the, like, who do you want coming to your shows? It's like, if you make the music that you like, then the people who come to your shows will be the people who have the same taste in music as you. And then you can be in a space together where you all like the same shit. Because also the thing that I think about all the time is like, we're not doing this to get rich. We're doing this because it's fun. So if it's not fun, stop doing it. 
<laughs> and go do something else. <laughs> Is there a worse fate in music than the uh, the artist who had a big commercial hit with a song they didn't like? I feel like that is like the ultimate pur- purgatory. Hell. Like that's the worst result from starting a music a career in music is to get successful on a thing you don't you didn't like you didn't mean to do you didn't. But then can we also agree what Issa just said? That like just describes a Jason Aldean concert, and like mm-hmm. we'd need another podcast to uns- like tell <laughs> that one. Wait, you think Jason Aldean doesn't like his music? No, no, I think the one right before that where just his. His uh, following, his North Star, and everybody that agrees is showing up in the same place, and they're all just having a party. Guys, <laughs> did you know that when I was 22, I went to a Jason Aldean concert? Ooh. Did you but love guess it? guess what? I didn't. I did. I went with my sorority sister, and we did not pay for tickets. We tailgated in the parking lot and listened to the music for free. Sick. Cute. Like a real fan. Like a real fan. And, um, and then a lot of things changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that a helpful anecdote or? Absolutely. Cool. I liked it. Thanks, Cindy. (laughs) Love it. All right. We have come up on an hour uh, and want to go around. If anyone has any final thoughts of things that uh, they'd like to mention before we wrap. I have one other thing that I've just been sort of rattling around in my brain. One thing that has really helped me in the last few years kind of navigate the my career and my soul situation is... Um, so, you know, for many years, like the first significant chunk of my adult life, my main thing was a band called Lula Wiles and we were, you know, all in for a long time and then we got burnt out and we started to want different things and we had to keep touring, uh, after we were burnt out and wanting different things and we all grew to hate ourselves and each other and our music and music in general. We don't hate each other or ourselves anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, a common tale. Indeed. A tale as old as time. What I've been focusing on the last couple of years is being a side musician. And for me, that is kind of, I if, it's, if I'm being a side musician to people whose music I like, which I'm lucky enough to mostly get to do, uh, that is the zone where my career and my soul are like in alignment right now. That could change in the future. I could decide that I want to play my own songs again. And I'm very open to that possibility. I'm working towards that happening. But for right now, it's like, I don't need to be the person who wrote the songs. I just need to be like playing and singing music that I enjoy. Mm. Um, And, you know, you can make a lot more money playing other people's songs than you can play your yeah. own songs a lot of the time. So that has been a, a way that I've found to kind of thread that needle, at least for the current mm-hmm. phase of my life. But things can always change. I mean, piggybacking off of that, I think that's like a really beautiful way to navigate this weird industry is to like have one or two things you won't compromise on and then like really forgive yourself for all the rest. Like, I was like really like vibing with what you were saying, Issa. And I feel like for me, the thing is like, I have to be playing my songs and I have to like, if I tell any community of people that I like care about them, I have to show up. Like, I don't want to be like, Hey, I'm a feminist. And then like, you know, take money from Victoria's Secret or whatever. Like other than that, like none of it really takes away from my integrity as an artist. Like we all have to be on social media presenting a false image of happiness. Like, just do all of it. T- like, take the gigs you have to take. 
but just don't violate your like one or two core principles. And like, you're probably doing really well. I have the same exact story as Issa, though, if anybody looked at the details, they would look like um, opposite stories. But when I was 20, I tried nine years of a music career where every single one was like a few steps forward and many steps back and it never made any sense. And I was a 29 year old living with my parents in Los Angeles. And then I found another fella that like filled up all the things that I got wrong. And, uh, it's that me. was, he completed you. That okay, wedding a, vows. That was a life changing thing. And boy, we were tested of, you know, all the same things you went through with your band. But in the end, I don't think I could have done it alone. I think the thing that worked for me was getting lucky to find somebody that, you know, challenged all those things about me and, and made me um, mature or whatever, take, take my next steps graciously. But I think it's literally the same as your story is that like, you got to advocate for the things that work for you and the things that you're lucky enough to come across. And um, funny enough, my biggest luck in life has been that those things have forced themselves on me because I'm not smart or aware enough to like recognize them for what they are. Uh, they've happened to me. Beautiful. And I agree, Kenneth. My, the thing that's been helping me lately is to f- focus on the fact, I think, fact that um, the main lanes of the music industry with like metrics that you can look at to just to judge your own success are not built for bands like us, uh, which is even though we do, (laughs) we do better on streaming than we should. We have good, we're do good on playlists. And so uh, like the ways that Spotify is unfair have a, like we've been on somewhat of the winning end of that compared to the rest of our career. Um, but it's still like totally small fish in a gigantic pond for what Spotify is trying to do. Likewise, like concert tickets at like established venues, which is kind of like the main thing of our business. I think like the whole concert and especially ticketing industry, we have to remember is not set up for concerts where, 50 or 100 or 500 or even a thousand people are coming all the companies that we have to work with are set up to do arena shows and stadium shows and they that that's where their financial models are and they don't care and they're not geared toward like being financially functional or viable for bands even at our level and i'm grateful for every bit of success we've had so remembering that we live in a, a, we work in an industry which is tailored toward like mega success. And if we, and because we are not striving for that, it doesn't really always serve us. Um, that like being okay and actually actively looking for other things that are soul fulfilling that also can generate income for us is like has to be first of all, not seen as selling out. We can't see it as selling out for ourselves. It isn't selling out if it's something that's also soul fulfilling, whether that's teaching, which we love doing. We do it at our camp now every year. Like it's been totally soul fulfilling in a way that I thought it wouldn't be um, to like producing other people's records, side manning, uh, whatever, all the way to like 
taking other jobs that you care about to doing stuff outside of music. Like I love coaching my kids sports teams. I've like become incredibly invested Hell yeah. in, in like becoming a, like a youth coach uh, and like dedicated to that. And so, uh, yeah, just realizing that we live, we're participating in an industry which is not really geared toward us. And so judging, uh, not judging ourselves based on those metrics and actively pursuing other things within that world and outside of it to like have not only income, but also soul fulfillment has been a huge part of the last couple years for us, I think. Cool. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up here on Folk Debate Club, your soul versus your career. I think we all know the answer, which is your soul is your career. Oh, which is what we figured out 10 minutes into the conversation. (laughs) 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 This has been awesome. Thank you so much, everybody, for participating. Uh, Issa Burke, catch her on tour with Aoife O'Donovan. Anything else happening with you, Issa, that you want to mention? Yes, but I don't know if I can talk about it publicly yet. So find me on the internet and you'll see. Okay. Thanks to the Milk Carton Kids, their new album, I Only See the Moon. You can get it for free at their shows. Go see the Milk Carton Kids live. And Kim Rule, host of Why We Write. Lizzie No, co-host of Basic Folk. Also catch her on the road. Thanks, everybody. This has been so fun and I can't wait to listen back. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, y'all. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Find us wherever you get podcasts, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. That's so helpful. Maybe share it with your cousin's friend's older brother who one time when you were in high school, you went to the local record store where he worked as a seasonal employee and you were like, oh, hey, guy, I applied to work at this record store, but I never heard back from them. And then he looked you dead in the eye and was like, That's because I know more about music than you do. Maybe send it to that guy. All right. Thanks a lot for listening all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.